if you have your Bible, I encourage you to open up. We're uh, in Hebrews chapter 13, looking at verses 17 to 25. Hebrews 13, 17 to 25. Back in the mid-2000s when our family was living in Vancouver, some friends and I scored some tickets for u show sold-out show in Vancouver. And um, we got to the show early because we didn't know how long it would take to find parking. And because we were poor graduate students, we decided to find some free street parking, even though we had to park a number of blocks away. Well, it turns out that the part of Vancouver where the arena was and where we parked was a rough part of town. Vancouver is such a beautiful city, and we were kind of surprised how dilapidated and dingy this neighborhood was. It wasn't a place that felt inviting or even safe. Well, we began our long walk to the Rogers Center Arena, and we were warily looking around at the buildings around us. Some of them were boarded up. Some of them were falling apart. Others were in need of repair. We saw grass in need of cutting. We saw weeds growing up through cracks. We saw trash needing to be picked up. And then we came to a Japanese-style building with a walled courtyard around it. And the courtyard gate was open to the public, and we had some time to kill. And this property was surprising in the midst of this neighborhood, so we sort of drifted in, curious. And what did we find in the courtyard? But a beautiful, picturesque, immaculate Japanese garden with uh, ornately trimmed bonsai trees, I think they were, other ornamental bushes and trees, a pond of koi, a wooden footbridge, a fountain, beautiful rocks, benches. This place was like a little piece of paradise in the middle of a rough neighborhood. And we were like, what is this place? We'd never heard of it, and we wondered why we hadn't. It was like an oasis, a thriving, well-kept, luxuriant garden. Well, that's the vision that today's passage gives us for life or for the life that we as followers of Jesus are invited to live. A life of blessing in the midst of life's troubles. We come this morning finally to the end of Hebrews. The end of this letter, which is basically a written down sermon to be delivered to some churches which are facing trouble and persecution because they follow Jesus. They're growing weary. They're thinking of giving up on Jesus. And Hebrews is addressed to them to encourage them, to exhort them to hang in there, to not give up, because Jesus is totally worth it. And so the author of Hebrews brings this letter, this sermon, to a close, and the author does it in three ways. First, the author wraps up the series of practical exhortations, which we have in chapter 13, with a prayer request, a personal request for prayer for the author and for those with the author. Then second, the author offers a beautiful benediction, a blessing. Now, many New Testament letters end with benedictions, and and we still use many of them today at the end of our worship services. And what we need to realize is that when these New Testament letters were written, they were often written 
to be read in worship services. And so the benediction was a natural way to end them because it would also likely be the ending of the service at which they were read. And so the author of Hebrews offers this benediction, this blessing, as a way of bringing the reading of this letter in the worship service, this written sermon, to an end. And so it ends dramatically with Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And then we have the third part of the ending of this letter, which is a tack on. It's a personal note, sort of a PS after the letter. And that's what we have in verses 22 to 25. So we have a prayer request. We have a benediction, a blessing. And then we have a personal note of greeting from the author. And what strikes me about this ending is that the benediction and the blessing in the middle of it is like that thriving Japanese pleasure garden in the middle of the troubles of life. Because the prayer request before it and the personal reminders or personal greetings after it are both reminders of the troubles of life. You know, in general, right, that for the original recipients of Hebrews, life was very difficult. They were suffering. They were being persecuted. And here at the end of the letter, it gets very specific and very detailed and very down to earth. Here we find out some of the ways that both the author and the recipients of this letter are facing the annoying, ordinary, even boring challenges of life, and also some very severe and even traumatic sufferings. So let's take a look just quickly at what these troubles are that are mentioned here. Beginning in verse 17 with the last exhortation before the author's prayer request, we read, have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. So let me ask you, why does this organization or this exhortation need to be given? Probably because some of the recipients of Hebrews are not expressing confidence in their leaders, are not respecting their leader's authority, and so are making the work of these leaders a burden. And so here's the first sort of trouble that this community faces, burdened leaders, right? It's a fairly common trouble in life. Leadership can be a burden, especially when the people being led cause trouble, complain, or uncooperative. Burdened leaders, it's a common age-old sort of trouble that we face in life, and followers of Jesus aren't immune to it. Second, in verse 18, The author of Hebrews says, pray for us. We are sure that we have a clear conscience and desire to live honorably in every way. Now, why does the author feel the need to say we have a clear conscience and we desire to live honorably? Probably because someone is publicly questioning these leaders' motives or behavior or questioning their character. In other words, they're facing criticism. Criticism, it's a second common, ordinary trouble in life, right? People question your motives or your character. They criticize your behavior. Third sort of trouble, as the prayer request continues in verse 19, I particularly urge you to pray so that I may be restored to you soon. 
Here we find out that the author of Hebrews, whoever he or she is, would like to visit the recipients of Hebrews personally, but hasn't been able to. Likely, that's why the author sent this sermon in the form of a letter. And we don't know what's keeping the author from going in person. Some think maybe imprisonment. Other interpreters think it's maybe an illness or maybe travel problems, unfavorable winds if the trip would be by sea, whatever. There could have been a lot of things. But here we see that hardships and unfortunate circumstances that, that can come up in life and separate us, they can separate us from those we love. And we relate to this one during COVID, don't we? There, there's been people we've been wanting to visit, to be with, but over this past couple of years, it hasn't always been possible, and, and the separations have worn on us. Fourth trouble. Jumping down now to verse 22. Brothers and sisters, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation, for in fact, I have written to you quite briefly. Quite briefly, ha ha, right? Who says the Bible doesn't have a sense of humor? Hebrews is a very long sermon, isn't it? Can you imagine the whole thing being given at once? And so here's another honest to life trouble that we face. Long sermons. I'll admit it, it's true. But here's the thing. Here's um, the challenge from my point of view as a giver of long sermons. <laughs> There's so much more I wish I could tell you. <laughs> you know, I've been at CBC over 13 years now, and I have not shared with you yet 10% of what I would like to share. There's so much more. There's so much more. The vision of how awesome Jesus is and the sort of life he's calling us to live, the goodness of all that God has done for us and how amazing and awesome God is. And if we could all take all of that in, how much more it would change our lives and, and how we would see this world and we would live differently and how that would transform us. Oh, there's so much more. And so it's frustrating as a preacher and a discipler that I can give you so little. Just a little drip feed, half an hour or so, week by week. It's such a slow way to bring you into the grandeur of it all that is our God. Which is why you need to get into your Bible yourself. And follow Jesus for yourself and discover it all for yourself. I think that's why the author says, I've written to you quite briefly. He or she is like, this sermon may seem long, but you have no idea how much more I want to share with you. But it's hard to get it all across, both for the preacher and for the listeners. Attention spans are short and long sermons do get tiresome. It's part of the trouble of this life. Then fifth in verse 23. This trouble is more dramatic. I want you to know, the author of Hebrews writes, that Timothy has been released. Here we learn Timothy had been in prison. Yes, it's a reality for followers of Jesus. It always was, it still is for many in the world today. Following Jesus can get you persecuted. It can get you put in prison. 
You read the book of Hebrews with its grand vision of Jesus as Lord of all, with all power over the world. And yet, meanwhile, those sharing this message and those receiving the message are so powerless. They're in prison. They're being persecuted. They're facing trouble. Then sixth, finally, verse 24, the author writes, If Timothy arrives soon, I will come with him to see you. Here we have delayed plans and waiting. The author's waiting for Timothy to arrive, evidently. They hope Timothy gets there soon. They want to go see those they're writing to, but they're not sure how long it will take Timothy. Delayed plans, we all experience it, right? Even our good plans, even the plans we feel God is in that are meant to honor God. These can face setbacks and obstacles and delays. We live in a world filled with troubles, right? Life is hard at times. We face frustrations and challenges. Some are small and annoying. Others are large, painful, and even traumatic. But yet, in the midst of it all, like that Japanese pleasure garden in that troubled Vancouver neighborhood, we who follow Jesus are invited to experience, to enter into, to enjoy and share God's rich blessing. And so that's what verses 20 to 21 are about, this beautiful benediction. Let's take a look at it now. This benediction, this blessing, basically has two parts. First, it has a reminder, a reminder of the good news of what God has done for us. And then second, it has a challenge and an encouragement to live a new kind of life in God's power, with God's help, in light of what God has done. A life that's countercultural, like light and darkness, a God-shaped life in a broken, fallen, and sometimes hostile world. A life that's like that Japanese pleasure garden, thriving and flourishing and offering life and beauty and refuge in a troubled neighborhood. Let's start with the first part of the benediction, the good news part, the gospel part. It begins, now may the God of peace. That's who we're praying to. That's who we're looking to, the God of peace. Now, why call God the God of peace? Well, God of peace is actually a fairly common way that God is referred to in the New Testament And Advent is a time when we remember why God is the God of peace. Because there are so many key Old Testament prophecies where God promised to bring peace. To bring shalom, that's the Old Testament word, to the world. To bring reconciliation. To bring to to reconcile brother to brother and sister to sister. To reconcile us to God. To make wars cease to end the groaning of creation so all creation can live in peace and can flourish. So this shorthand, God of peace, encapsulates all of that hope and vision and good news for the future, for who God is and for why God sent Jesus, for what God's salvation will eventually accomplish in our hearts and in our community and ultimately for the whole world. That's what God is about in the world. That's what God is up to in the midst of the trouble. Offering more peace on every level. Reconciliation, 
restoration, wholeness, flourishing. Now may the God of peace. Well, how is God going to bring that peace? Let's continue. Who, through the blood of the eternal covenant, brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep. Now, this is fancy religious language, and it sounds majestic and grand, but what does it really mean? Well, what might not be immediately obvious, unless you know your Old Testament well, is that Hebrews is quoting two Old Testament scriptures here. And the thing we have to remember when the New Testament writers quote the Old Testament is that they may only quote a line or a phrase, but we're expected to know the whole passage that that line or phrase is part of. Kind of like if I quote to you, silent night, holy night, right? What does that bring to mind? Just a very quiet night? Or do you think of Christmas time and a baby being born to a virgin in a manger and shepherds and angels? Wait a minute. I didn't say any of that. (laughs) I just said silent night, holy night. But that one line brings up in our imaginations a whole song, a whole season, a whole lot of sentiments, right? And that's what happens for the New Testament writers and recipients when they quote a little part of the Old Testament scripture. You know why? Because they knew and loved their Old Testament Bibles way more than most of us do. Why? Because they didn't have the New Testament yet. The Old Testament was the only Bible they had, and because they didn't have Netflix or social media or video games, so they spent way more time than we do reading and memorizing and thinking about and talking about and treasuring their Bibles. And so quoting a line was enough to activate all that meaning. So let's see if we can track with them. We're at a disadvantage here, so stick with me. First, the blood of the covenant in verse 20. The author of Hebrews adds the word eternal here to highlight and the, the finality and the lastingness of this new covenant reality. But blood of the covenant comes from Zechariah 9.11. Listen, starting at verse 9, so we hear the whole picture and the emotion with it that this phrase would bring up in the hearts of, of the hearers. We, we read this uh, when we lit the Advent candle. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. So you see how God is the God of peace here, right? In this scripture. And the blood of the covenant was a promise to not forget about God's people, but to include them in that peace. It was God's commitment not to give up on his people, whether they deserved it or not. And we know from the rest of Hebrews, because we've just spent months looking at it, that the blood of the covenant, um, or we know how the blood of the covenant, how that commitment was fulfilled. How Jesus came and died 
for God's people, shedding his own blood to offer himself as the ultimate sacrifice to make a way for us to come back into God's presence and to invite all of us to become God's people, to invite us into a new eternal covenant, a new committed relationship with God. That's the blood of the eternal covenant. And then continuing to the rest of verse 20, God brought back from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep. And this is a quote from Isaiah 63, 11. This passage in Isaiah was addressed to God's people when they were in exile. They were experiencing a life of trouble. And the passage in Isaiah is remembering back to how in the past, back in the time of Moses, God had rescued his people out of trouble before, out of the slavery of Egypt. And so now Isaiah is raising the question as, as he's addressing those in exile, looking back to Moses, where is he that brought up from the sea the shepherd of the sheep? Where is he that put his Holy Spirit in them? Who led Moses with his right hand, the arm of his glory? He forced the waters to separate from before him to make himself an everlasting name. He led them through the deep. So in Isaiah 63, Isaiah saying, where is God who led Moses? And it's Moses who was the shepherd of the sheep. Did you catch that? Maybe you know the story of the Exodus and the parting of the Red Sea. When God led Moses and the Israelites, shepherd and sheep, away from the Egyptian armies, and God parted the sea, and Moses shepherded God's people in and through, and then back up out the other side to safety, to deliverance, to freedom, to new birth, to new life as God's free, saved people. And here, Hebrews is picking up on that story as Isaiah tells it and says, that was all fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is an even greater shepherd of the sheep. And God led Jesus safely, not only through deadly waters, but through death itself, through the grave and up and out the other side. And now get this, this is key and you wouldn't get it if you didn't know the Old Testament background. Since Jesus is the great shepherd, the assumption is the sheep are following. Like the sheep of Israel following their shepherd Moses, so we who follow our great shepherd Jesus are sharing in this deliverance. We go through deep waters too, don't we? We share in Jesus' death. But if God has led Jesus safely through death and on to deliverance and resurrection on the other side, then we will also share in his resurrection. That's our hope in his deliverance, his freedom, his newness of life. Jesus, our shepherd, is leading us, each one of us who follow him, on the path of death and dying to self, and then also being raised to new life and power. Do you see what the author of Hebrews is doing here? Again, it's harder for us to track with because we don't know our Old Testament as well. It doesn't bring up instant meaning for us. The author of Hebrews is using these stories and, and prophecies from their Bible, the Old Testament, and they're reminding us of the good news of what God did through Jesus, giving us hope and encouragement in the midst of our trouble so that we can thrive and flourish. 
reminding us that the God of peace through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, and he will do the same for us. This is the good news of salvation. This is how the God of peace is bringing peace, shalom into the world and into the troubles of our lives. Notice how God does it. Not by taking away all the troubles. Not by spilling the blood of our enemies and those who oppose us, though that's what many in the world would like to do today, literally or figuratively. But rather, God does it by coming in peace and in love to offer his own blood, his own life, to seek to reconcile his enemies and our enemies to him and to us and to reconcile us all to him and to one another. That's God's way of peace in a troubled world. All right, let's move on to the, more quickly to the second half of this blessing, which is a challenge and a reminder, a challenge and an encouragement as to what all this means for us and what we're to do about it. Verse 21. May the God of peace equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him so that he gets all the glory. As we live in this world of trouble and annoyances and hassles and suffering and even persecution, God is offering to equip us, to furnish us, to outfit us, to supply us, to train us, to prepare us with everything good that we need. For what? For doing his will and doing what is pleasing to him. God wants to equip us with everything good, with spiritual gifts, with wisdom, with empowerment, with ability, with insight, with love, and with patience. How could it be otherwise? How could God call us to a task he wasn't willing to equip us to fulfill? And what are we called to? To do his will and to please him. And what's his will? What is pleasing to him? Well, God is the God of peace. The God of shalom. The God who is seeking to bring that peace to lives, to relationships, to the world. To restore, to heal, to mend, to reconcile, to redeem. And God wants to use us. God wants to use his people. This pleases him. And when we do it, God receives the glory forever. So, like that Japanese garden, flourishing, offering beauty and life in the midst of a troubled neighborhood and troubled lives, that's who we are to be as God's people. We live in the midst of trouble. We're not immune from it. In fact, if we're faithful to Jesus, we may feel the trouble more acutely than others. But yet we can thrive and we can flourish. Why? Because of the good news of verses 20 and 21. Because we're blessed and we're equipped. We, God has saved us. God has employed us in the task of bringing peace. And God is equipping us with everything we need for that task. 
early on when the pandemic started, I was thinking, if we can really lean into God, we can survive this thing as a church. And the word that kept going through my, my head was, was the word resilient. We can be resilient and we'll get through this. And then I saw a video online and I don't remember if it was a TED talk or it was an interview, but the speaker said, there's something even better than being resilient. And that's being what, he, what the speaker called anti-fragile. And, and what he meant by anti-fragile is, and maybe not the most elegant term, but it's that that things that are anti-fragile don't just survive tough times, they thrive in them. They're not fragile in trouble, they're anti-fragile, they thrive. And I was like, wow, that's a challenge. Here I was just thinking survival would be good. You know, let's be resilient. But the challenge, and it's the challenge of the book of Hebrews and the New Testament, it's to thrive in the midst of trouble. And how do we do that? Well, it's, it's exactly what the author of Hebrews is calling us to in this letter. And the benediction shows us how. By the good news of the gospel, we thrive. The good news about Jesus Christ. And all the equipping and empowering that God offers to give us as well. So, do you believe that? If you do then receive this benediction. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead, our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.